My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. Then you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. diving through and navigating through the prophets of the Old Testament. And we're going to jump into a prophet today by the name of Hosea. And in Hosea, what we're going to see is Hosea is going to portray God in this very balanced way. And what I mean by balance, if you think of balance, when you think of balance, you think there's kind of a, a opposing sides, right? There's kind of, there's weight on this side, there's weight on this side, and you find that perfect balance where the weight doesn't teeter over to one side or teeter over to the other side. And we have to have a balanced view of God. And what we're going to see the prophet Hosea do so incredibly well is he's going to balance kind of the mercy of God and the justice of God at the same time. Now, it is hard for us to keep a balance, right? You just saw today. I could hardly keep my balance. And I was literally a foot away from the edge, and I still almost lost my balance, right? But maybe it's not navigating just like that, like walking, but it's hard to have a balanced view of God. And when we don't have a balanced view of God, we don't treat each other fairly. We don't live a balanced life. Without a balanced view of God, we don't live a balanced life. And, and maybe you've realized this as you're exploring the Bible, you're walking through it, or you're just diving into Christianity for the first time. Maybe you've experienced this, that you've had to make some kind of adjustments, pull the pole, if you will, in a different direction. As you've been exposed to the things of God, you've realized, you know what, my view of God was a little imbalanced. Like maybe you realized just recently that your view of God was a little soft, you saw God as so incredibly loving, so incredibly compassionate, but it got to the point where God wasn't addressing sin. He wasn't calling out evil. He was kind of brushing sin under the rug. He was dismissing it too easily. And you've, you've realized as you've walked through the Bible and you've experienced Christianity more that you realize God does have high expectations and God does hand out consequences for moral misdeeds. So you've kind of had to make that adjustment. I know that adjustment is, is hard. Or, or maybe it was on the other end. Maybe you realized your view of God was 
just too harsh. Right? Maybe you had a view of God where his moral standard was so incredibly high, his rules were so incredibly specific in your life that you thought there's never going to be a way I can please God. And so maybe you've had to kind of pull the other direction and have a more balanced view of God. I know for myself personally, I've had a hard time balancing the justice of God and the mercy of God. And here's what I've realized. When I have an imbalanced view, I have an imbalanced life. And I think particularly when it comes to forgiveness. I don't practice good forgiveness and I don't pursue forgiveness in a right way when my view of God is wrong. If my view of God is too soft, I'm too soft. If my view of God is too harsh, then I'm too harsh. And so what I want to try to do is I want us to navigate this very, it's very difficult to navigate kind of the tension we're going to feel in our passage, but we're going to feel it and we're going to feel it together. But I think what we're going to find is we can have a balanced view of God. We don't have to see the mercy of God and the justice of God as enemies, but as friends. Not as contradictions, but as compliments. And when we see that, when we kind of center of our, ourselves, we'll be able to practice forgiveness in a way that's healthy. So let's jump. Hosea chapter 11, we'll start with verse 1. And let me give you the big idea right up front. This is the big idea of our message today, the main idea of our passage in Hosea chapter 11. That's this. God is not a teddy bear, but a tender lion. God is not a teddy bear, but a tender lion. What I mean by teddy bear is I think oftentimes we treat God as just a tool for our comfort. Right? We're scared. We heard something bump in the night. We're quite certain there's something living in our closet waiting to eat us alive. Right? And so we hold that plush toy to ourselves. As my kids call it, they're stuffies, right? And it's true that God is a God of all comfort and God is a God who is tender, who is compassionate and all those things. But we have to be very, very careful that we don't stuff God's claws with plush cotton. We cannot tame God. We cannot domesticate God. We cannot remove that he is a God of authority, a God of power, and a God who punishes evil. We can't treat him as just a teddy bear, a tool for our comfort. No, he is a tender lion. Let me show you this. Hosea chapter 11, starting with verse 1. And what we're going to jump in first is we're going to see the tenderness of God. And Hosea is so brilliant at using these just beautiful metaphors to make us kind of feel the tenderness of God. As you've navigated through Hosea, you've seen some of these. He's used the idea of a rancher kind of mending his vines or, or, or taking care of his cattle. He's also used the metaphor of a, a marriage relationship. He's used the, me, the metaphor of a, of a parent. He's trying to pull out these emotions in us. To communicate how tender, kind, compassionate, and warm God is to his people. And we're going to see that right here in the first four verses of Hosea. So let's just, just let's unpack this together and I'll do my best to kind of illustrate the emotions I think that Hosea is trying to pull out of us as he uses these, these metaphors. Look at Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And I called my son out of Egypt. But the more I called to him, the further he moved 
from me. Offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. I myself taught Israel how to walk. Leading him along by the hand. But he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with my ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck and I myself stooped to feed him. Right up front, he uses two metaphors. One of a parent and a young child. The other of kind of a, I'm going to say like a pet owner. But that first one should really bring into us a lot of emotion. He's describing Israel at this very tender age, a very young age, at the age where one learns to walk. So we're talking like barely moving out of kind of infancy, maybe uh, a year old or so. And what God is describing is Israel became my son, my child, my people of promise when I delivered them from Egyptian slavery. I, I, I called them out. And I led them by the hand. And if you remember the Exodus story, Israel really did nothing to deliver themselves. They just honestly sat back and watched God break the Egyptians. I mean, he came in not with a plan of here's some military strategy, hold the sword like this, aim the bow like this. He did none of that. He said, Moses, you speak and then watch me flex. I mean, that's the Hebrew translation. I'm, I'm, I'm just transliterating that for you there, right? But that's what God really did. You speak, I'll do the heavy lifting, right? You see the dependency there? And I think that's what Hosea is picking up on. It's just like your child, like your, your little guy could hardly feed themselves, right? If, if you left them alone, they're stumbling into the wall. They're putting their finger in light switches, right? They can't care for themselves. This is what God is saying. In your dependency, I led you by the hand. Think of it this way, like if you can remember when your kids were really young or maybe you have grandkids or maybe you can even remember when you were a kid of this age. I can't go that far back in my memory. But if you ever watch a parent lead their child and kind of put out their pointer fingers and they, they grab on like they're holding on to like a Harley Davidson, right? And they're just holding on to those handlebars and you're there with them walking. Right? It's hurting your lower back, but you're not thinking about that right now. Right? You'll icy hot that thing later. But you're holding them right in each step as they kind of like stumble and find their way. You're right there so attentive to their fall. Like so attentive to, oh, their foot's curved a little bit there. They're not going to make it. That's what God is describing. As I took Israel and I, I held him by the hand, I protected him from a fall. Right? I guided, I instructed them in how to live a holy life. I was there tenderly being attentive to their every need. That's what God is saying. Do you feel the tenderness there? The compassion there? That fatherly love there? At the end of verse 4, he switches metaphors. And I, I want to say pet owner because I don't think the metaphor is like a rancher. I don't think that's fair. Because he talks about leading this animal with ropes of kindness, lifting the yoke and stooping down to feed. I don't, a rancher, I guess in my mind, would, would see a horse as a tool for the harvest, right? In utility terms only. That's not what God is describing here, right? I, I think of my sister who has a horse named, named Ricky, and, and Ricky doesn't pull a plow. Ricky takes pictures, like photo op. Like, I'm serious. They dress up Halloween, Christmas. They do a whole photo op, right? That is not a beast of burden, okay? That's an Instagram star, 
That's what that horse is to her, right? She loves that horse. She cares for that horse. That's what God's kind of describing here, right? I I love you and I'm there with you. And even though he's kind of switching metaphors from a parent-child to kind of a pet and pet owner, it's not meant to diminish the kind of emotion it invokes. It's just a different angle. And the angle I think God is taking is, I stoop down to feed you. Now think if you remember the Exodus, if you go back, God led them out and who fed them on the journey? Right? Who packed the snacks in the minivan and is throwing Nutrigrain bars in the back? God did. God was the one who miraculously provided manna from heaven. He just dropped it. He didn't like throw down a coupon book and say, okay, go over here to Canaan's grocery store and get yourself some food. No, he said, look, I'm just going to deliver it. Right? You thought Target was the first one who figured out that like kind of delivery, drive-in, pickup. That was God. God says, pull up right here, unleashing the storehouse of heaven. That's what's being described here. God is attentive to their need on their journey to the promised land. Think back of maybe your mom making you a treat. You had a hard day at school. Let's say you got bullied. Maybe that's hard for you to imagine. I can imagine that one. Maybe you were the bully. I'll have illustrations for you later. Okay, but... Right, maybe you have a hard day with school and that, that, that person just picked on you and called you names. I'm not going to tell you the names they called me. I don't want you to have that ammunition, right? But, but you, you just had a hard day, but mom knew exactly the treat to give you to kind of lift your spirits, right? Or when you were sick, mom knew the soup to make you. When you weren't feeling too good and your body was achy, mom had these like therapeutic snuggles, right? Just, just come up, I'll rub your head and we'll watch Transformers together. That's the kind of tenderness that God is trying to communicate through the prophet Isaiah. I was there for you, leading you like a young child. You didn't even do anything. You didn't do anything to fight back those who were trying to hurt you. I freed you from that. And when you had a need, when you cried, when you cooed, when you wanted something, I was attentive. I was right there. I just rained down your food. Now, sadly, the emotion takes a turn We read it in verse 2. Let's read it again. How does Israel respond to this tender-hearted God who loves, cares, and provides like a parent of a young child? Look at verse 2. But the more I called to him, the farther he moved away from me. Offering sacrifices to the images of Baal and burning incense to idols. Jump to verse 3. But he doesn't know or even care that I took care of him. Israel betrays God's kindness. Now Hosea will use another metaphor. We can't get to it in this book. But he'll use the metaphor of sin being adultery. The ultimate kind of emotional and relational offense of breaking a marriage vow, breaking a marriage covenant, going and sleeping with another. The idea that he's describing here is almost like, and hopefully you've never experienced this as a parent, but if you, if you have, and I'm assuming you have, and if you, you're not yet a parent, you've probably been a child and said these words, but there's a moment, there's a moment in parenthood that you get to, there's a moment in childhood that, that we've all probably gone through, right, when your parent or you are trying to give wisdom and guidance and direction you're trying to protect their delight and not burden them with rules and obligation and you're trying to be clear and you're instructing and you're getting passionate and then your little one or you gets to the point you just boil over the volcano explodes and you say this phrase I hate you you ever heard that from your kids 
You ever say that to your parents? Oh, man. I'm a patient guy, and I'm a little guy. But I'll hit you for that one, right? I mean, there's something that invokes so much emotion. You're like, what? And then if you're really honest, right, that first hits, and you're like, and then you're like, right? Your fist balls up, and then you realize, then the tears ball up in your eyes. And you're like, but I, I was there for you. I, I kissed all the boo-boos. I, I, was, I was there for you. And you hate me? That's the kind of emotion he's trying to evoke in here. Right? That this rebellion is a betrayal. It hurts. Now the passage is going to take a turn. God's response, this loving, kind, care, caring father, compassionate and loving. He's going to have to address that. All right? He's going to have to respond to that. And look at what he says will happen to Israel because of their rebellion, because they betrayed him. Look at verse 5. But since my people refuse to return to me, they will return to Egypt and they will be forced to serve Assyria. War will swirl through their city and their enemies will crash through their gates. They will destroy them, trampling them in their own evil plans. For my people are determined to desert me. They call me the most high, but they don't truly honor me. Wow. Here's the lion. Here's the response. Tender, compassionate, loving. Let me hold your hands. Dad, I hate you. Now what he's describing here is going to be the fall of the northern kingdom. If you remember from kind of Israelite history, God's people were one big nation, but then they divided. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was often called Israel. The southern kingdom was often referred to as Judah. This is a description of what's going to happen to the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom will fall later, much later. But he's describing here, Hosea is describing here, is the fall of the northern kingdom. This is when Assyria will come in. Okay, and as bad as that news is, and this is the hardest part of the entire message right now, is what's coming. Because what we don't want to do in Hosea 11, Hosea is kind of emphasizing, putting the focus in that it's these foreign armies and these invaders coming in to punish Israel for their evil deeds. But that's not the full picture of what's going on. Let me show you this in Hosea chapter 5. Hosea is going to use that metaphor of a lion. Okay, now just think, God is not a teddy bear. He is a tender lion. We've seen the tenderness, but now we're going to see that God is ferocious. Look at this, Hebrews, sorry, Hebrews is a great book, but we're in Hosea today. Hosea chapter 5, look at verse 14. Look at God describe himself. I will be like a lion to Israel, like a strong lion to Judah. I will tear them to pieces. I will carry them off and no one will be left to rescue them. These foreign invaders, these foreign armies, these foreign powers, Assyria coming in to take in the northern kingdom, they're going to break through the gates, it says. And that's the idea that Israel is going to be totally overwhelmed. Their defenses are going to be useless. They're going to break through the city, get to that kind of inner sanctum of their society. They're going to come in, but the one who's behind the charging army is that lion, is God. 
These guys are simply tools and instruments of his punishment. It is God who's behind their punishment. Do you see this, this tension? So tender, so loving, so compassionate, but at the same time, fierce, with a high standard of holiness. And he will deal out consequence for sin. And then it changes again. Look at the turn again. This is verse 8. It goes back to that tender description of God, even when his people rebel and he has to deal out punishment. Verses 8 and 9 are probably the most perplexing verses in our entire chapter. I was talking with a friend about this chapter and we were both struck by just these verses, how powerful the image is. Look at how God, after dealing out this plan, Israel will be destroyed. Their sins will finally be addressed. Their evil will be punished. Justice will fall. Holiness will be lifted up. Look at verse 8. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or demolish you like Zeboim? My heart is torn within me and my compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy you for for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you and I will not come to destroy. This metaphor is so just packed with emotion. It could almost lead us to a wrong thought. Right? We have to remember this is a metaphor. This is figurative language, illustrative language. This isn't literalistic language. God is actually not questioning himself. Like he doesn't know something. That's not the point of what Hosea is trying to paint for us. What he's trying to show us is how much God loves us. Think of it like this. It's like, it's like that father who was there to, to lead his child, to teach him to walk. And then that child grew up. And now he's a teenage boy. And he asked for the car. You gave him the car, but it's 2.30 now, and he's not back. And you're a good dad, so you track his GPS on your phone, (laughs) right? And you know he's coming back. But I tell you what, man, you are pacing that living room, and every single blade of carpet in that living room is being moved by your pacing. And you're thinking to yourself kind of these kind of questions, what am I going to do with this one? How am I going to handle them? How much can I ground them? How much can I... How much can I do to show them that this is wrong? And then there's that part of you that remembers those tender moments when he was sick or scraped his knee or got bullied and you came in and you rescued. You think of those tender moments where you held him, right? When he was, you were just trying to console him. Maybe he was uh, colicky as a baby and you were there during those crying times to just soothe him, right? You think all of those moments and you think to yourself, no, I can't be too hard. I can't, I don't want to destroy him. I don't want to do it, but it's 2.30 in the morning, right? That's what, that's what Hosea is trying to convey to us. This is God's heart for us. Those two cities he mentions there, Adma and Zeboim, they're not mentioned very much in the, New, in, the, in the Old Testament. They're two nearby cities to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're sister cities to Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis chapter 19, God comes into Sodom and Gomorrah and those two cities as well. And when he comes to visit, it's coming with wrath. And he lays waste to those cities. Well, God is saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want to come in and do what I can do. 
what I could justly do. Yes, Israel will pay for the consequence of their sin. They'll be taken away to captivity now in Assyria. But God says, I don't want to fully destroy. I don't want you to feel the full weight of my wrath because I love you and I care about you and you're still mine. Even though you told me to my face, I hate you. And this is the most, one of the most remarkable parts of our passage is how the lion metaphor is used again. We saw in chapter 5 how the lion is fierce. He roars and it says he tears Israel to pieces. The lion comes back in chapter 11 and he roars, but he's doing something else for the people. They're not going to run from his roar. They're going to be restored by it. Look at this again. Verse 10. For someday the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion. And when I roar, my people will return trembling from the west. Like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt. Trembling like doves, they will return from Assyria. And, they will, and I will bring them home again, says the Lord. What a counterintuitive response to a roaring lion. Like if I'm walking and I hear a dog bark, I want to go away. This lion roars and what happens? That same lion who was fierce, who was against them, who tore Israel apart, that same lion roars, and now how do the people respond? They come under his strength and don't run away from it. Isn't that interesting? I remember being a 10-year-old, and I was always a little guy, and at 10, I was even a littler guy, and there was a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old, and they bullied me. They used to beat me up, and these guys beat me up a little bit. They took my toys and um, I ran to my dad. My dad was not a big guy, but my dad was a brawler. He was a brawler. He's got some he's stories. And uh, so I ran to my dad. I'm just crying. I'm like, oh, they took this and this and this and this. And my dad came in like a lion. It was incredible. He got to those boys. He didn't lay a hand on them. But he came in and they cowered before him. It was awesome. <laughs> but he roared and I found security. I found safety. And, and I would say I found safety in his righteous anger. I think this is exactly what Hosea is trying to portray to us. God will roar out to Israel in Assyrian captivity. After they have come back to him, they realize that they're wrong. They repent. They turn, as the Bible would say. They confess their wrong ways. And God roars and it scares Assyria. It scares the oppressor. And they release the people back to their rightful father and master their benevolent king, that roaring lion. They're protected now under his roar. What a beautiful balance, right? Between the mercy of God and the justice of God. But how can God do this? Like if we're, if we're just walking through chapter 11, it feels so imbalanced, doesn't it? 
Like it seems like we're on God's good side. Oh man, now he's a fierce lion, tears us apart. And now he roars and now we come back and we're going back and forth and back and forth. How does God pardon and yet God punish? How does God forgive and yet condemn? How do we do this? How does this work in Christianity? How can we have a God so merciful yet a God so just? It's because it's the center story of this book that makes sense of that tension. The center story of this book is the cross of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of the God-man. See, that's when God's justice and God's mercy collided. That's the moment where the full weight of God's wrath was poured out. There was never a moment, nor will there be a moment, that fully expresses the wrath of God than the cross. All his display of wrath prior to the cross, all of it after the cross, will not be a full depiction of the wrath of God justly laid out upon sin. Only at the crucifixion of the Son, only the Son of God has stared into the eyes of that lion, knowing the hunger in his belly for his flesh, knowing the sharpness of his jaws, knowing the terror in his paws, only the Son of God stared down that lion and was torn to pieces, fully exhausting his wrath. Imagine a lion exhausting himself with his fury. That majestic, mighty, massive creature, swing after swing, bite after bite, to the point where his muscles can move him no more. He's exhausted his wrath. That's exactly what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. Justice fell. Yet love prevailed too. Because nowhere do we see the mercy of God more than in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that justice didn't fall on us. It didn't fall on me. It didn't fall on you. No, the son stood there and faced down that lion. Why? Because he saw you. He saw behind the lion. He saw beyond the lion. Hebrews tells us who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. He saw the joy set before him. What was the joy? It was the joy of winning you back to the Father. What did he see through the fangs? He saw you. He saw you. And says, I'll take it. Right here. Sink your teeth in. I'll take it. Every swing, every blow, I will cry out. I will be broken, but I know what's going to happen after. The beauty, the justice, and the mercy of God colliding at the same time. The balance only makes sense in light of the cross. And this greatly impacts our practice of forgiveness. And I would argue only having the cross at the center of your life will you actually experience true forgiveness and the true practice of forgiveness. Because here's what we often do. A Christless forgiveness will treat offenses without their full weight. Right, we'll say, it's okay. It's okay, I know you hurt me, it's okay. It'll try to justify and explain intentions. I know know you didn't mean it that way. I know you didn't mean this. And and we'll diminish the sin. And let's be honest with ourselves. Has somebody hurt you in your life and then given you a cheap forgiveness? 
They truly didn't plumb the depths of your hurt and your pain. Right? They only kind of got surface deep and then gave you a sorry. How does that feel? Right? They didn't get down to the deep parts of your heart that they hurt. They didn't plunge down there. See, that's the problem is we cannot, we cannot lighten sin in our practice of forgiveness. We got to confess it. We got to let it all out. When we hurt somebody, we got to do the same exact thing. I know I made you feel this way and this way and this way and this way and this way. But see, with a Christ-centered view of forgiveness, you're courageous to do that. You'll call it exactly what it is. You'll say it's horrid, it's evil, it's ugly, it's bad, it's wrong, not right. It is hurtful and it is harmful. You'll be courageous to do that. Do you know why? Because you're not afraid of shame. Because that's the other side of the cross. Mercy. There is no shame for you to feel for your sin. And if you feel shame, okay, I know this is hard. If you feel shame, you don't understand the cross. You don't. If you're wearing shame because of your sin and you've confessed that sin to God, that shame is from Satan. That shame is from your pride. That shame is from your false sense of self because you're seeing something the Father doesn't see. Because the Father doesn't see your shame anymore. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. No matter how hard and bad and evil and ugly and nasty your sin was, if the Father can't see it, why is it the only thing you can see when you look in the mirror? It's because you don't know the cross. See the beauty of the forgiveness we can practice? As followers of Jesus Christ, we can run in and say, oh man, I'm sorry. I did this, 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 and we can just continue to go. Totally self-deprecating, demolishing our sense of self-worth or whatever you want to call it, lowering on our esteem, but we're not afraid of that. Because my esteem doesn't come from what I've done. My esteem comes from what he calls me. And he calls me righteous in his sight because I've confessed my sin and fallen on the mercy of Christ. So I have no problem giving you a lower view of me. I have a low view of me. But he has a high view of me. So that's what I'm holding on to. When you know shame cannot stick to you, you'll be courageous to confess any sin. And when people come to you, they confess their sin to you. And they plumb the depths of their offense towards you. Don't hold them in shame. Don't give a cheap sorry. You know what that's like. And we know when we do it, right? We know when we say, man, I forgive you, but inside we don't really mean it. And we see them leave that conversation still wearing that shame. We see that they feel like they still got to prove themselves. That trust has to be earned again. That they'll never perform enough. We'll never give them an opportunity to get close again. Right? They can feel it. Okay, yeah, it's... Sorry, I forgive you, whatever. And we blanket them with a burden that has been lifted from us in Christ. Do you see the richness of forgiveness that we have when we have a high view of God, a right view of God? We see him as that tender lion. We can call sin what it is, but we can also see that shame will never stick to us. This week, as you practice forgiveness, let go 
of your sense of self-preservation. Confess your sin in all its ugliness. And then be freed to never wear your shame again. And when people come to you, be eager to take off the shame that they have. I can't wait to forgive you, man. I can't wait. Now, maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. You're just exploring the things of God. I know a message like this is very hard to hear. God is not a teddy bear, but a tender lion. Friend, I'll be honest with you. This is not just hard to hear. It's hard to say. But you need to hear this. You need to hear this with great love. Either your sin will be addressed at the cross or it will be aimed at you forever. He is a tender, loving, compassionate, abundantly merciful, full of compassion, ready to forgive. He, wants, he, he delights, and the son delights as well, to be broken by the father's wrath, to take on that. He delights to free you from that guilt. But if you don't respond to his tenderness, friend, you will only know the fierce nature of his justice. And it'll never be filled. You'll never get to the end of it. The Son of God took the full wrath of God because he was God. But you are not God. And you cannot take in the full weight of the sin that you've committed. It'll be prolonged forever and all of eternity. It's either addressed at the cross or it's aimed at you. And I know that's hard to hear. And I know in conversation with friends and I know in my own experience, it's so hard to come to this idea, well, how could God send people to hell? Just be balanced. Know that God went through hell for you. And we cannot lighten the message of this book or lighten the message of the gospel. We cannot lighten the sense, no, God's fine. He'll just sweep it on the rug. No, the offense is there. It's horrible. It's real. It's injustice. It's wrong. It's, it's an infraction on his holiness. It's pulling away from the whole stream of the glory of God in creation, pulling towards his praise and honor. It's adultery. It's moving away. It's resistance from cosmic momentum to praise God. It's treasonous to sin, but God will triumph over that in mercy if you would just submit to him. If you would just confess to him. Know him as the tender lion. But know that he's also a lion. Don't leave this room with a low view of your sin. I pray you have a real view of your sin, but don't leave this room without a high view of his mercy. Because his mercy can eclipse every offense. So my prayer is that you would just run to him today. Run to him today. Confess your sin and find that he is faithful and just to cleanse you of all unrighteousness, to call you back, to roar against your oppressor, sin, and Satan, and to bring you back home. That's what he wants. And that's what I want for you as well. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. And Father, we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I thank you that you are a tender lion. We cannot tame you, cannot domesticate you, can't defang you, declaw you. We can't make you more fluffy, more comfortable, full you, full of cotton. We can't do those things. You are tender to us. You love us. You care for us. 
but are you also a holy God, creator of the universe, the glorious one? Thank you for the mercy you give us in the death and resurrection of your son. May, Father, that change. May that change our practice of forgiveness. May it give us a high view of sin, but also willingness to release shame. Father, let it have that just perfect balance of calling sin what it is, but not letting any shame stick. And Father, for those in the room right now, or maybe watching online, maybe, Father, you're showing them right now the weight, the true weight of their sin. But I know, Father, as you do that, it's not to offend, it's to mend. It's not to condemn, it's to heal. So I pray, Father, that you would give them the courage to face the weight of that sin, the weight of their offense. Let them lean into that because beyond that, there's mercy. Beyond that, there's grace. Beyond that, there's tenderness. Beyond that, there's affection. Beyond that, there's come back, son. Come back home. Come back home, daughter. And so, Father, I pray right now, if there's anybody in that room in that moment, in this moment right now, I pray, Father, that they would call out for your mercy. They would see the cross as their only means of forgiveness. They would pledge their life over to you. Father, we thank you for the reassurance of your word that our sin is handled and our shame can be no more. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.